All right. Before we get started, I want to uh, claim that promise in Acts 1 of Jesus when he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon us and we shall be his witnesses uh, to the very ends of the earth. That is true now and since the time he said that. So, um, so back in early January of 1991, I was on a plane on my way to California, heading to San Bernardino, uh, which is east of L.A., if that's kind of like East of Eden. Anyway, um, I was on my way to San Bernardino to Arrowhead Springs, which is up in the mountains just north of, of San Bernardino, to the international headquarters of Campus Crusade for Christ to join the staff of that ministry, of which this year is my 30th year. Uh, on the flight, I sat next to a woman who, after settling in for our four-hour-ish, I guess, long flight, we began to interact. In the course, I was like 22 maybe, in the course of finding out about each other uh, and the the subject of why I was going to California came up, that I was going to join uh, the largest Christian evangelism organization in the world. I also found out that she was a part of a ministry as well. And though I don't recall exactly which ministry she was a part of, I do remember several things about that interaction. I was struck by God's provision for her and her faith in the God that provided for her. I remember remember over the course of the conversation, she shared several stories that I can only describe as fantastic or fantastical or, or miraculous. She shared experiences of traveling nationally, even internationally, not knowing where she would stay for the night or many nights and suddenly finding lodging that she knew would be provided. She knew it was going to be provided. She just didn't know how. One particular experience I do remember was when she shared driving across half the country from the east uh, coast to the west with her car's gas meter on E. And that meter was not broken. I remember her saying something like, if God had wanted me to get there, I was going to get there. Nothing would stop that, not even an empty gas tank. Now, this woman could have been making all this up. However, I wonder how others felt back in the first century when a person named Andrew or Matthew or James or Simon the Zealot said, Yeah, I saw he died, and several days later, I was eating with him. He was alive after he was dead. I can't explain it. Imagine how you would respond to somebody saying that to you. He was alive after he was dead. I can't explain it. Faith in things not seen seen, uh, can seem odd, even as it is reasonable. And we can see that here in these two verses. But before I get to that, we need to walk through some things with these verses that may assist us in understanding faith or trust in God and his word. What I want to do this morning are to address generally two things 
and then go into several ideas within those two generalities. Uh, the two general ideas I want to go through are, one, the apparent things these verses are saying. What are these verses saying? And two, the underlying char- characteristic in these verses, that of faith or trust in God and his word. The verses say, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your, all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So it seems that we have here an act of respect through the giving of resources, resulting in filled barns and bursting wine vats. So we have this word honor. Honor in this verse, I believe, means to acknowledge authority or acknowledge value. The word used here is the same one God gave in the fifth commandment in Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The implication here is that the honor you give mom and dad should flow out of the honor you are giving God. Do you hear that, kids? It applies to me. My mother's not here, but she lives in my community. (laughs) The honor you give to your mother and father is evidenced in your obedience to their guidance. The honor given to God has that same element of obedience to his guidance as it does with your parents. But here in Proverbs 3, the clear way you are to give honor is in your wealth. And how we in our day and age exercise honor is that we, is that which we invest in. We, we exercise this honor by giving out of what we invest in. I've always found the statement, if you want to know what someone values, you look at two things. Their schedule and their checkbook. And I expect one of those, on those schedules and in those checkbooks would not only be investments in time with children, family, and friends, but most especially ourselves. We would, and we would see we invest a lot in ourselves, which is interesting because is, is it an accident that Jesus connected love, the loving of our neighbors to the loving of ourselves? Hmm. Perhaps he knew something we didn't. Real honor seems also to provoke uh, a physical response. The least of this kind of act is through an oath or a pledge. When you honor something, sometimes you take an oath or a pledge. You state it out loud. The greater of this, that's, that's a minor, that's, that's a small thing in some ways. It's just your same words. They should mean something, by the way. Uh, the greater of this type of honor seems to be the giving of yourself. So you have that range of the lesser of oaths to the giving of yourself. Have you ever noticed that these two types of acts are found in Sabbath, in Sabbath liturgy or services? Do you know that? Oaths and acts of ourselves. We have creeds and prayers that we recite together almost weekly. We physically rouse ourselves on Sundays and go together to one place to worship God. We also gather outside Sabbath Sundays in the name of our God to fellowship and serve one another and our neighbors 
And of course, we invite everyone each week to do what Solomon says to do, honor God in the giving of our wealth and the tithe. And that is what is meant particularly here in Proverbs 3. Wealth is essentially riches. Though it could also mean more than that, which I'll comment on. It, means, it mainly means the equivalent of money. I say equivalent because we're talking about mainly an agrarian society here when Solomon wrote this. It's not a modern global financial world that Solomon lived in like we live in now. But before I move on, let me address the comment about more, uh, more than riches or money. The reason I say this is because when I uh, read a comment by an Israelite, in this case, the king of Israel, Solomon, two Israelites, because that's who are the recipients of the book of Proverbs, what it makes me think of is the very place the nation of Israel got started, namely with Abraham. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you see the very place God started the nation of Israel with Abraham. In Genesis 11, God divided humanity up using language at the Tower of Babel. The very next chapter, he chooses one out of all that division then to become his priests, his messengers, his conquerors, so to speak, of the rest of the world. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He says, Give yourself. Go out. I'm going to show you where to go. Verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In these few words that God speaks to Abraham, we see the full breadth of the kind of wealth given to the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham. God promised to make Abraham and his descendants a great nation. Well, a great nation not only needs financial resources to be great, uh, but it also needs a place from which to operate, land needs a headquarters. In this case, it was the promised land. And a great nation, in order to accomplish the blessing of the earth, needs the wealth of many, many descendants. You need people to get it done, to do that work. So you need wealth, you need land, you need people. So you see that all promised to Abram in Genesis 12. And the great nation would also need a certain level of notoriety and fame so that people would perhaps be intrigued by this wealthy nation and want to know why is this wealthy nation wealthy. So you see all this kind of, whether directly or implied, in God blessing Abram to say, you are my people and you will bless the families of the earth. Wealth is not only the wealth of money or riches, though that is useful, but it is also other things. What is interesting is that some of these evidences of wealth were also apparent with the reign of Solomon. He was financially rich, obviously. To this day, we reference that. As well as wealthy in knowledge and fame. And for a time, that was used by him and by God to bless many other people. 
I think of the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon. But as this passage's focus is more on material wealth, we will focus there. And that means I will have to talk about tithing. Sorry. We have to talk about money. And I know that is not necessarily the most popular subject to talk about in church because in many ways the current modern church seems to treat money uh, the way the world does. Jesus did talk about money a number of times, especially money as related to a person's character. So I won't do anything more or less there. But Solomon says to honor God with your wealth. How? The exercise almost from the beginning of humanity uh, was a tithe. I say from the beginning of humanity because a portion of even what Cain and Abel produced was given to God. You can read about that and how it turned out in Genesis 4. Spoiler alert, Cain did it. This giving a portion back to God was called a tithe. Tithe means tenth. And this is first mentioned in Leviticus 27, verse 30, where it says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Later in the book of Numbers, God says that this tithe given to him was to be given to the Levites That's the, as their portion. That's the priestly tribe. They're the ones that worked in the temple and the temple system. Since the Levites were not given any land in the promised land, when the Israelites entered, they did not have the necessary means to produce what they needed as a tribe. So God utilized the tithe to him as the means of sustenance for the priesthood of the Israelites. God chose a people to be the priests of the world, the nations, and he chose a tribe to be the priests of his people. Have you seen notice a pattern here? And God used his tithe to provide for those people so that they could minister to the Israelites so that the Israelites could then minister to the world. This kind of structure is used in many structure, uh, churches as a way of providing for individuals who pastor and also support the activities of the church. The biggest issue with tithing that usually comes up is the question of how much, and the arguments vary. Since the word tithe means tenth, the most plausible biblical argument is a tenth of something of your income. I am not going to go into whether that is from your gross or your net. I think God has granted you all good enough minds to make up your own mind in regards to that. I will not judge you. If you need to be judged tonight, I'll be glad to give you what I think. But I've also heard that the Bible does show that a tithe can be even higher than a tenth. And though I have not heard the full arguments of those particular percentages, I can imagine perhaps a good one could probably be made for more than tenth. But I think the best argument for what amount to tithe I've heard was from my pastor when I lived in New York City. He didn't land on an exact amount. That's typical of him. But he did land on an exact attitude. We should have a dis- uh, that the attitude we should have on deciding what amount to tithe. Let me read Philippians 2 as our guide for this attitude. 
Ready? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what should be our attitude? Well, how much did Jesus give of himself? He gave everything. So my pastor's conclusion regarding how much should we give, how much we should give, he was, his answer was sacrificially. But that is up to each one of us and our relationships with God in the context of our local community, is it not? My conclusion on the matter of tithing is slightly modified. I think absolutely we should give sacrificially. Christ did. We should too. And I am woefully, woefully weak in that. We should walk in our sanctification path with God with that mindset. But I would say that we should give at least a tenth. Gross or net, it doesn't matter. Give a tenth. But let me put an asterisk by that statement. Let me make uh, this as clear as possible. God will not love us more when we give, nor less when we don't. Do you hear that? God will not love us more when we give, nor will he love us less if we don't give. He loves us. He is our Father. But in in our effort to trust him on our pilgrim's path, we should give in gratitude of his work in our lives, even to this day. God knows the struggles you may be going through financially. He's not a tyrant. He's our Father. Sarah and I try to give a tenth to the local church. And anything beyond that is just our desire to try to do more. But there have been times where it's been a struggle when we have stopped our giving to the, for a time. You can look at the record. Justin could show it to you. I don't care. But we have always tried to restart that. Our tithing has varied over the years, but we've always tried to give in some way. So let me ask you some hard application questions. If you aren't giving, why not? You need to really examine that. If you can't give a tenth, then what can you give right now? And are you growing in your relationship with God that you can trust him for the small tithe, increasing in amount? I'm not trying to to generate guilt in this moment, at least not empty guilt. There is a guilt that is proper, but that is between you and the Lord. I will say this, we as Hill City are doing okay financially, but I think uh, we the elders and even you in the congregation would love to see us grow, and I don't just mean financially in that, grow even into having a full-time pastor, perhaps even growing to a point of planting other such churches for local communities and neighborhoods in Rock Hill. I've heard rumors of spiritual activity 
sounding almost like awakenings happening in other parts of the world and in the U.S. Just in the last few days, a friend of mine said there were some reports of high interest in response to who Jesus was and is on the campus of Michigan State University. Interesting. Incidentally, if you look at the history of awakenings in the West, in the United States, a good number of them start on campuses, college campuses. Brett has mentioned some things in other parts of the states and the world. You can ask him about that. Um, I think God could be preparing us for that, even us, Hill City. And for that work to be met as best it can, there needs to be a financial resources available to meet that work. I'll end that there. What about these filled barns and bursting wine vats? Now, I want to address this verse about barns and vats. But you might think in the initial reading that this is an immediate if-then verse, meaning if I give God money, then God will give it right back to me. This is a dangerous conclusion to draw. God is not safe. But as Mr. Beaver followed that line up with what? But he is good. (laughs) He's not safe, but he is good. Meaning, God will not be cornered by me or you. (laughs) He is not going to be controlled. He is a lion. He will not be manipulated. He is the king of kings. He can't be manipulated, controlled, or cornered because he's God. If you want to try, as my mother-in-law would say, good luck. These two verses are not a formula for success, but a promise from a father to his children of true worship. There are several reasons the if-then thing is incorrect. The immediate if-then thing. First, we have to remember that we give what, what we give is not ours that we give to God, but it is His that we are giving back to Him. He made everything. Everything is held together by Him. Look at Colossians. It says it. Everything is already His. So He's not... <laughs> He's asking for what his he's asking for his material. Just a little portion. Second, this verse certainly sounds like it is if then, but it has to be balanced with other places that say things slightly differently. Luke nine. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew 10, Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These all don't smack a full barns and bursting bats. Sorry, Jesus, that doesn't sound like my barn is full. It sounds like I'm going to get hurt. 
They sound kind of the opposite. Then also look at the story of Job. Uh, Job had full barns and bursting vats, and then he didn't in a really hard way. But then he did again. We'll get to that. And even in the life of Christ, Jesus honored his father in everything he did. Everything. And what did they do to him? What did we do to him? Both Job and Jesus gave to God, and God sent them down a path less than stellar. Now, as I have been describing the incorrect aspects of the if-then thinking when it comes to this verse, I don't know if you notice, but I sometimes or often, as I could use, the word immediate. Uh, This verse is an if-then kind of verse, but it is an if-then at some point verse. Let me explain. Remember, the person writing these verses, Solomon, he did make the choice early in his life to honor the Lord with his wealth. And the Lord filled his barns and burst his vats. Later in his life, this changed, and he suffered the consequences of that choice. But it is to be expected that we mere human beings would have a hard time holding to the formula. We needed a human being who was capable of following this path and able to hold to it, and we got exactly that. Where? Of course, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But we see Jesus in his work in this verse. In both verses, Jesus is in this verse. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. The first fruits are exactly what you think you would think them to be from the word. They are the very top or very first of your harvest. They are the best of what you got from your work on the farm, and they go to God. But in the New Testament, there was another first fruit described by Paul. 2 Corinthians 15, 20-23 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a, by a man came uh, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, in, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But in each his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. The gospel is hearkened to in these Proverbs verses. When an Israelite gave the firstfruits of their labor to God, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus being the firstfruit of given by God to save mankind. When Solomon wrote the word first fruit, he may not have understood that that was referencing potentially in some way depth, the Messiah. But we are to give the first fruits to God. Why? Because he gave his first fruits to us. What's interesting is that same word is also used by the apostles Paul, James, and John to describe us as well. We're described as first fruits. Christ was the first fruit of God, which Jesus in turn granted to us. Wild, no? James 1.18 says, Of his own, Jesus' own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits 
of his creatures. Isn't that wonderful? So we give our first fruits to God. He gave his first fruits to us, and he makes us first fruits. Look at verse 10 for Jesus. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Jesus is in that verse. One of the things you stored in barns, if you needed to, was grain. You did in silos and, you know, in your barn. And grain is the primary ingredient of bread. Hmm. Vats were large containers in which you placed grapes to be pressed for wine. Bread and wine. 1 Corinthians 11.15, Paul wrote, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we partake of the bread and wine, brothers and sisters, we, in a sense, echo Solomon's words here. We exercise our trust in the wisdom that is from God. The bread says there are full barns. The wine says there are bursting vats in our future. But what of the underlying characteristic? I've looked at the verse. What about this underlying characteristic? How is it that giving, the kind described in these two verses in Proverbs, express what faith is? Let me read verse 9 again with some embellishment. Honor the ultimate unseen being with your wealth and the best of what you have. Have you thought about that? Faith is simply trust. And in this act of giving, we are trusting God and all that he has done. When he says our barns will be full and our vats bursting, we are trusting he is telling us the truth. Some people make faith out to be something relegated only to religion. As if faith is all mystical and ultimately nonsensical. Which is why I like to use the word trust at times to describe faith. The word trust seems to have a more earthy, real sense to it. But even people who wouldn't have faith in in a God utilize trust of things they can't see or completely understand. Even somebody who wouldn't believe in something they can't, an outside world, outside the box, even they trust things they can't see or understand. I'll give you an example. Venmo. Via a device, a few inches in size, that is physically disconnected from any wires, sends a signal after buttons are pushed on this device through the air to another device, which is usually connected physically, or maybe not, to a wired network of energy and light through which that unseen energy and language and light makes its way to the correct place most times, and you are able to pay $10 for eggs from the Olson farm. How is that not faith? When you say to Rebecca Olson, I'll Venmo you. And she gives you that number. She's trusting you to send it. And you're trusting her to receive it. 
And you're both trusting the network that that money is going from place A to place B. We're foolish to think that that's not faith or trust. Isn't it interesting how close faith or trust is to everyone of us, whether we have faith or not? We exercise it every day. But there is another aspect of this underlying characteristic, which is our second reading from this morning's readings. The widow's might or tithe. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. Dang, this woman gets me. And watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them. Truly I say to you this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. How is that possible? So here we have a quiet moment with Christ as he sits and simply observes uh, one of the acts of worship in the temple. Jesus is watching who is putting who is putting in and how much is being put into the offering or tithing box. A lot of rich people put large sums of money in and you can imagine the sound they would have made with those big sacks of money into that box and as these rich individuals place their amounts in Jesus remains unmoved yeah Mm. boom yeah boom yeah then a widow who through her dress was probably looking very different than the rich people that walked up to that box puts in two copper coins that make a penny plink Plink. <laughs> and Jesus about loses his mind in excitement. <laughs> I would have been excited with like, Lord, look at all that money that's coming into the temple. And, and you know, plink, plink. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, did you just see that? that did you? And he calls his disciples over and he, he tells them what had just happened. Her giving of two small copper coins far outweighed all the full sacks of money all the rich people put in. And Jesus is clear to his followers as to why. The rich gave out of their abundance and the widow gave all, everything, out of her need. This is an account that I've always been burdened by when I read it. Because I'm always striving to be like the widow. But find myself more like the rich people. Perhaps you feel the same. This is... What astonished me about meeting that woman on the plane in 1991, I just couldn't believe it. And maybe that's the point. It's miraculous. 
It is in Christ that we find consolation even as we strive, because he is the example of both the widow and the rich person. Did you think about that? Why? Jesus didn't have any needs. He made everything. He had everything. And remember, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, or perhaps the widow, and made us the first fruits. Jesus didn't give out of his need. <laughs> he gave everything out of his abundance. And now the resurrected Christ offers that life to us. He offers it to you. So how do we exercise our giving? For those who may not follow Jesus or believe in him, you first exercise your giving by not giving. <laughs> by, you do it by accepting first. Accepting the gift that has been offered to humanity since that dark day 2,000 years ago on Golgotha. You get that gift that has been offered to humanity since that blessed day 2,000 years ago at the entrance of the empty tomb. What do you get? You get life. You get the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You get your humanity restored, and you become his first fruits that he offers to his Father. What you, my brothers and sisters, get, how do you exercise your giving? You, you, how do you do that, brothers and sisters? You give. You give as Christ gave. And what kind of giving is that? It's one of faith and sacrifice. This isn't difficult. This path of faith and sacrifice is a path he has already walked. And he awaits us at the end of that path. He actually says he'll be with us on that path. He awaits us and he'll be with us on that path. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says this to his fathers. Let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Brothers and sisters, that place Jesus is preparing for us has full barns and bursting vats. It is the feast held in the golden streets and green parks of the New Jerusalem. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for promising to be with us. Thank you for showing that by being present in your word throughout history. And that you are the first fruits. That you are the bread and the wine. You are the full barn and bursting bats. I pray, Jesus, you would help us as we struggle. Because this, I say, 
it's easy because you've walked that path. And in a sense it is. But Lord, it feels heavier than it is. Um, Give us consolation that you've walked that. That your yoke is easy and that your burden is light. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare us. Help us exercise proper giving, Lord. Giving back to you, honoring you. In preparation for whatever is coming, Lord. Something is coming. And we want to be prepared. And we want to have the resources. And we want to be further along in the sanctification path. So that those people around us who are not different at all from us can also join us in the land of full barns and bursting vats. That we may have meals with them. The feast meal. Uh, in the new Jerusalem. We love you. Thank you for this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.